So the big question is this, how are real estate investors who don't have a ton of free time, don't have access to off-market deals, and didn't start life on third base? How do we grow a real estate business conservatively to support our families, finally leave the corporate rat race, and build a legacy? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Ed Matthews, and this is Real Estate Underground. This is the Real Estate Underground podcast show number 35. Hey, everybody, Ed Matthews here with the Real Estate Underground. I am very excited about today's guest. Jacob Vanderslice is principal at Van West Partners. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome. Ed, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of the things that I was really excited about was the asset class that you live in, right? In the self-storage. I know you're very diverse in terms of all the asset classes you have experience with, but seems like self-storage has been, you know, at least one of the big places where you've played. For those folks out there who don't know who you are, what is your backstory and how'd you get here? Well, I'm a principal at Van West Partners. We're a private equity shop based out of Denver. And I got started investing in real estate in about 2006, started doing single family fix and flips. We grew that line of business. We did a ton of those over the years. Excellent. Did some multifamily, some adaptive reuse, retail deals, town home development. We've covered a lot of bases. And we had studied self-storage for some time. And we liked its historic downside protection during economic downturns. So we got into the business in 2015 with a couple of ground up development deals here in Denver. And we actually recently sold those a few months ago. And then uh, we expanded into the Midwest, the Milwaukee market. We did a few deals out there and just kind of kept going. We launched our first storage fund in June of 19. We closed that in August of 20. And then we launched our second fund in 21. We closed that at the end of last year. And we're on our third fund right now. We do funds and we also do single asset syndications for development projects but we still run our rentals and our retail projects, but self-storage is definitely our main line of business. Okay, fantastic. In terms of your calculus and how you look at a project, whether to syndicate it or to run it through a fund, I mean, what is kind of your thinking using those tools? So the only reason we're doing syndications in addition to our fund is our fund is only buying existing storage facilities. Got it. It's buying some deals that are full, some deals that are empty, but it's only buying existing product. And raw land ground up development is just too much of a different animal from that business plan. Right. So instead of layering development into a fund, we decided to do our development projects outside the fund and single asset syndications. Got it. So we, we closed a deal about a week ago here in the Colorado Front Range, and we've got three more behind that in Q4 and Q1. We might roll those up into a fund vehicle or that strategy, I should say, into a fund vehicle at some point. But for right now, they're just single asset syndications. Okay. All right. So that helps clear it up for me. So in terms of how you got into real estate, what drew you in? It sounds like you may have a finance background. I don't have a finance background at all. I've uh, Everything I've learned has been by screwing up. I was a history major in college and I was flying airplanes and I was also a firefighter. Always was fascinated with real estate and just kind of jumped in, not really knowing anything. Yep. And in my early 20s, and as you can imagine, I got beat up pretty well, but I learned yeah. a lot. Sometimes education is expensive. Yep. But yeah, just learned by doing and just kind of grew the platform along with my partners from there. So you and I went to the same real estate school then, you know. Yes, it's, it's the best real estate school out there. The school, I, uh, the it's school expensive. It is yeah. expensive. Yeah, exactly. It makes the Ivy League look actually almost reasonable. But the uh, yep. the, the yep. fact is, is that, so I'm a technology guy by trade. And when I left my world, you know, my friends and colleagues were like, oh, we want to invest. And I said, tell you what, 
let me go prove the business model. Let me go screw a whole bunch of things up. Let me learn how to fix them and not do that whatever mistake I made again. And then when I get comfortable, we'll talk. So yeah, same school. So that's interesting. So I'm curious in terms of real estate as an asset class, right? As a general asset class, what drew you to that versus anything? I mean, you're obviously a smart guy. You could have started any business. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Real estate is generally for dumb guys, right? Uh, It's uh, it's easier and simpler to look at a building and figure out how to add value versus trading stocks or options or whatever it might be. I always like the just inherent intrinsic value that comes along with a piece of real estate, right? It's a hard asset. You've got land, there's intrinsic value in land. And it's fun buying something distressed or undermanaged and making it better, making it look right. better, making it perform better financially. So yeah, I don't I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't doing real estate full time. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I one of the things that drew me in was that it, exactly you can go out, you can put your hands on a building, you can directly affect the value of it, and frankly, you can buy really good assets with leverage, which is the other thing, right? As opposed to taking that dollar and investing in a company stock and hoping the CEO knows what they're doing. That uh, yeah, dollar, dollar can, buys $1 a stock, right? Yeah. If a stock investment isn't going well, really all you can do is sell or buy more, right? Those are kind of your two options. But if a real estate deal isn't going well, for the most part, you can do something to fix that. You can spend yes. more money on, on marketing. You could do some capital improvements. You could rebrand the building, whatever the case might be, to a degree, you have a fair amount of control over the outcome Indeed. of the deal's performance. Indeed. So let's talk about the asset class that you're currently focused on in self-storage. So why self-storage as opposed to you know some of the other classes that you're also invested in? I certainly didn't go to high school thinking I'd grow up to be a big self-storage owner and operator, but that's where I'm at now. And the reason I like self-storage, it's durable and repeatable. And our primary objective in all of our deals, beyond, of course, not losing money, whether we're developing a project or buying a value add acquisition, our primary objective is always cash flow. And self-storage is a great cash flow vehicle. The recurring revenue streams are very granular. So we're relying on thousands of people to pay us 50 to 300 bucks a month in rent. And they're all month-to-month leases. And the month-to-month lease for the customer works well because they can come and go as they please. Most folks stay a lot longer than they think they will because uh, sight out of mind, it's a credit card. And then on the ownership side, a month-to-month lease works well because we can change rates in response to changes in the submarket. So if we have a unit type that's really full, we can increase rates on that unit type. And likewise, if we have a unit type that's lighter on occupancy, we can decrease rates below market, fill it up. We can change rates by the season. You know, the Midwest, obviously, rates go up a lot more in the summertime than they do in the South because weather's better and it's not miserable. People are out moving more. So the dynamic revenue management and the granularity of the revenue streams are a couple of the aspects of the asset class that really attracted us to it. Yeah. One of the things that I've learned about self-storage, I don't invest directly in any, in terms of our company's portfolio, but the fact that you can adjust your revenue stream on a every six month or, or even sooner basis is really an advantage. If the market is growing quickly, it's a lot easier to adjust price points in self-storage as it is in my world, you know, multifamily. Yeah. Multifamily is kind of in between on the leasing side and revenue streams. It's kind of between like an an industrial triple net 10-year lease and self-storage. So your leases are hopefully two years, sometimes one year. You have turnover, but you can forecast your revenue streams a little more accurately. A 10-year industrial lease, you know exactly what you're going to get on your revenue streams. Assuming the tenant pays probably within 1%, you can forecast your revenue out for the next 10 years. Self-storage is very different because they're all month-to-month leases. You got seasonality. 
So that lends itself to allowing operators to a degree experiment with revenue management. So you can experiment on a given facility one month. And if that experiment doesn't go well, the next month you can course correct. Like if you raise rates and you get too many move outs, you can bring rates back down as you measure the performance of that rate increase and the impact on the facility's performance. So yeah, experimentation, not too much, but you can experiment in the asset class and course correct fairly quickly if the experiment doesn't go well. Just a little. Right. Just a little, just yeah. a little. Gives you a little bit of turn this knob off and this one on, right? A lot more control, I would imagine as well, right? That's got to give you the ability to control your revenue stream way more effectively than, you know, somebody in a different asset class could. So let me ask you something, you know, in terms of entrepreneurship, what separates the folks in your business and our collective business that tend to succeed versus the ones that struggle? I mean, what are you seeing as kind of the key things that make a successful real estate company operate efficiently? Well, I think the first key to success, and we're still striving towards success, I can assure you, as I'm sure you are too. Are too. But, but I think the first key is getting in the game, right? And taking a risk. A lot of people just get kind of paralyzed. They look at deals or they never see the perfect deal. They haven't done a deal yet. They've got some cash. Right. The best way to learn though, is to get in the game and actually operate real estate. Some of the better operators we've seen there in all real estate asset classes are really good at muting the downside and quantifying the upside. And muting the downside, I think, is obviously the most important aspect. Like, what series of events have to happen on this deal for this deal to lose? And if those series of events are very, very unlikely, that's probably a pretty safe investment to know you're not going to lose your money. Right. But then on the other side of it, also reasonably quantifying the upside on the deal as well. And when you quantify upside on a given real estate investment, what you got to figure out is, are your underwriting assumptions reasonable and achievable? It's not like, all right, if everything goes perfectly, we're going to get a 15% IRR on this deal. That never does, right? Deals always go better or worse than you think they will. They never go exactly like the model suggests they will. Um, So I think muting the downside and quantifying the upside with reasonable and achievable expectations. And then after buying it or building it, whatever the case might be, execution. We always hear you got to buy deals right. And of course that's true, but so much of the value is created on efficient management operations, controlling expense loads, growing revenue streams. That's just critical. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The fact that you have to have systems in place to be able to effectively manage, regardless of the asset, to effectively manage the business, right? The other thing that I would add to what you just said is we measure everything because you know anything that's being measured can be improved. And like you, we are a work in progress and I don't know that it'll ever be done, which is, in my opinion, it's part of the fun, right? Is to continually work on the business and get it to operate as optimally as possible. Yep. I'm very proud to say we get less stupid every year. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that. <laughs> All right. <you're laughs> I probably borrowed it from somebody else. Yeah, I'm sure. Speaking of somebody else, one of the things that I've noted with a lot of the real estate and frankly, entrepreneurial professionals in general, is that they work with mentors or coaches who give them advice. What's your opinion on mentorship, both receiving and giving? And I'd also like to ask who gave you the best advice you ever received? I've had a series of mentors and people we look up to over the years. Of course, my family is one of them. I got into real estate, this family friend of ours, this was like in the early 2000s, we were skiing 
And he was on this janky Windows phone at the time with a stylus. And, you know, he was emailing, he was on the on phone calls in the ski lift and he was closing deals. He was talking to his title company. I was like, man, this looks fun. I want to do that. I want to be on the ski lift to close deals. Right. So that was kind of inspirational. I didn't really learn much from it, but it was like, man, this is real estate's pretty cool. But as far as specific mentors over the years, we did JV back in our single family days with a really high net worth guy here in Denver, completely self-made. Came to Denver in the 70s with half a tank of gas, 20 bucks, you know, one of those things. Right. And just created a massive enterprise. Learned a lot from him and his team and his shop. One thing that we said is when there's a downturn, the lights go out, you're never going to see it coming. It happens overnight. It's just yeah. instant. One day you wake up and it's like, whoa, this is not good. It's not some kind of slow reduction. It happens quickly. Yeah. So we're watching out for that. Another takeaway I got from there, you know, I walk in their office the first day we're doing this JV. And my first question was, oh, what kind of IRR you guys want to get? They kind of sit back for a second and look at me. He's like, you know what? We're not too concerned about IRR around here we worry about building businesses. And I was just like, man, that is cool. That is cool. Because IRR, we all live and die by IRR in our underwriting. It's the universal metric that describes the return profile of a real estate deal, but it's a misleading metric. And when he said that to me, I was like, man, that's a building businesses. So we've tried to focus on building businesses. That was really what I got to. As far as coaches go, we have a business coach. He's awesome. We've been with him for almost three years now. We do a monthly meeting with him and my partners, and we also do rotating meetings individually with him. And he's helped us work out a lot of interpersonal like communication challenges we've had over the years, goal setting, accountability. And we set a big goal for last year. And I remember going into 2021, it sounded like, oh man, how are we going to pull this off? Right. He's like, if it's not scary, it's not big enough. And, right. and we, we hit it and, and a lot more. So he's been huge. But I think spending money on people like that, as expensive as it can be, the ROI on it, it's tough to quantify, right? So indeed, just the two pieces of what you just said really resonated with me. One is, you know, from a goal setting perspective, getting clear, right? Getting really clear on what you want to accomplish. And then obviously not worrying about how we're going to do it, right? Just what, what are we going to do? And the other piece of it that's very interesting to me is the idea of accomplishing those goals and then figuring out, okay, you know, what's the next hill to take, right? And so it's interesting that you make an investment in someone like a coach, like the person that you work with, and that investment returns in exponentially. Like you said, and I have a mentor who's said the same thing to me, that if it's not spooking you a little bit, you're not thinking big enough. And yep. so yep. when I love the idea of someone giving you that little bit of a push I always tell people, I don't need cheerleaders, right? My mom thinks I'm awesome. If I want to hear about how awesome I am, I'll go buy and buy mom breakfast. But the fact is that really what I want is someone who's going to tell me the truth, right? And look me straight in the eye and say, look, here are the things you can do better. And here's what I would do. And more importantly, challenge you and get you to think outside of your comfort zone so that you can build businesses, as you said. Certainly. Are you interested in real estate investing right here in Connecticut? Ever wonder where all those real estate investing pros hang out to network? Did you know the Connecticut Real Estate Investors Association will introduce you to those investors and will help you learn how to find deals, fund those deals, and even teach you how to do it without leaving your current job? Go to ctrea.com, that's C-T-R-E-I-A.com, and click on the events button to register for an upcoming event. Hope to see you soon. Buying investment real estate is both thrilling and sometimes stressful. 
Without a lending expert by your side, most investors don't stand a chance. That's where CTRIA Funding comes in. CTRIA Funding was founded by investors to help investors just like you fund their deals. Whether you're buying a single-family rehab, an apartment building, or really any investment property, our team will understand your deal and help you close quickly. Go to CTREIAFunding.com or call us at 860-876-0572. So in my experience, leaders are readers. And these days that can mean books, but in a lot of cases it's podcasts or audiobooks or meetups and things like that. And I'm curious how you grow your capabilities and how do you continue to kind of sharpen the saw, so to speak? What are some of the things that you do and who are you paying attention to these days? Well, we're part of a number of mastermind groups. And those are extremely valuable because people are just open and honest. They talk about what's working, what's not working. People throw challenges on the table and you talk about, I mean, mainly you talk about what's not working. That's the most bad. We don't care what's working. We we want to hear what's failing, right? So it's been extremely valuable. As far as reading goes, I regrettably to a degree limit myself to mostly historic nonfiction. And I read books about leadership, a lot of World War II stuff. Yeah, I do business books here and there. I've read all the standard issue ones, but for whatever reason, I always struggle to get through those very quickly. But I take a lot away from historic nonfiction and stories about leadership and leaders who have experienced challenges and how they dealt with those. And frankly, the challenges that they experienced are far, far more of a challenge than we experience on a daily basis, right? That it um, yeah, we have a bad day if we don't get a deal or something or a lender retrades us on a term sheet. Right. And you look at what some other people went through generations ago, it's just meaningless. Yeah, it puts it in perspective, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. Yeah. I have two cheats with the business books that, that can be a little bit dry. One is audiobooks and the other is uh, Blinkist which I don't know if you've ever, actually a friend of mine who we interviewed a few months ago that put me onto Blinkist. And it reminds me of my academic days where I was reading crib sheets to get through my, I was an English major, so liberal arts students unite. One of the key ways I actually got through high school and to a certain extent college was crib notes and making sure that I at least knew the high level points of why the book I was supposed to be reading was important. I've heard about Blinkist and I will certainly make a note to download that. Yeah, it's, well, it's nice because, you know, in 15 minutes, you can basically read a book or at least get the key points. Interesting. Yeah. So I'm curious about your masterminds. Would you like to talk about some of the specific masterminds you belong to and what you get out of them? Yeah, certainly. We're part of one group called the Real Estate Investor Roundtable. It's put on out of Baltimore by a guy named Fred Lewis. Okay. And he's a prolific single family investor, really smart guy. He does a lot of stuff. He has a hard money fund. It's a bunch of operators around the country in various asset classes. It's fairly intimate. I think there's about 30 people in there. Nice. People present and just kind of talk about what's working in their business and compare notes on the market. And it's extremely valuable. I missed the last in-person event. My partner went, but I missed the last one because of childcare conflicts, but I'm going to the next one in October. So I'm excited for that. Another group we're a part of is called Freedom Founders. Okay. And Freedom Founders is run by a guy named David Phelps. And Freedom Founders brings dental professionals together who have excess cash flow and deployable cash and educate them on how to invest with sponsors. So about half are dental professional members, half the group are folks like us. There's single family operators, multifamily, industrial, self-storage, you, know, you name it. Yeah. And kind of teach them how to invest in private real estate deals to replace their practice income. So those events are really meaningful. And the sponsors have a weekly kind of mastermind call as well. So we all get together and compare notes on our businesses and we have topics that we cover. We'll present on stuff here and there, but it's just your barometer 
on what's happening in the country is just talking to other folks and hearing what's working. We used to be part of another really good group called Collective Genius. Yeah. And they meet quarterly. And the only reason we dropped it is just we have young kids and it's once a quarter, you got to be gone for about three or four days. Right. It was still valuable. And we really kind of had to just choose like, you know, what are we going to keep going to? So between the current masterminds and then going to look at deals, most of our deals are not in our backyard. Right. I'm going to Oklahoma next week for a couple of nights to look at a portfolio that we have tied up, but it was just too much travel. But masterminds are extremely valuable. Yeah. And you just hit upon something that really means something to me as well. And, uh, you know, in my past career, I, there was a point where I was spending 150, 200 nights a year on the road. And my wife turned to me and at one point of crystal clarity and said, you know, you're missing so much good stuff with these kids. And it's one of the main reasons why I left corporate America and jumped into the real estate business head first is because it afforded me the opportunity to, it, as we were talking about right before we hopped on this show, if my daughter Maggie's playing in a softball tournament in Nashville, Tennessee, I can be there. Yep. I don't have to ask anybody yep. permission to be there. And that's one of the benefits of being unemployed, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I don't have to spend Friday night at dinner explaining to these two little kids who the scruffy guy is at the kitchen table. They, they <laughs> right. Right. around. So it's wonderful. It's nice that you've gotten that level of balance. It's quite fortunate. So I am still seeking balance, but it's very important and getting home every night at a reasonable time, you know, five 30, I try to just cut myself off and get out of here to spend time with the little guys. These years go quick, as you, you know. Do. Yeah, you'll blink and they'll be asking you for the keys to the car, I guarantee you. <laughs> right, right. It's amazing what you learn at the dinner table. And it's amazing what you learn bringing them to whatever event they're going to, listening to the conversations that are happening in the backseat. It's pretty neat. So, Well, I'm excited to have more productive conversations with them. Right now, they're four and almost three. So yeah. not a lot of philosophizing on the way to the park, but, but it's coming soon. But that's okay. You know, having conversations about baseball and puppies is just as much fun as the big topics. So that's right. That's right. Let's talk about one of your deals. What is one of the, you know, your favorite deals and what worked? And frankly, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? The deals I remember are the failures, the home runs. First of all, when you hit a home run, you rarely buy the deal expecting it's going to go as well as it might actually go. Of course. We had a lot of deals in our first fund that were just absolute home runs and we bought them at the right time and executed and just saw massive revenue growth. I can't really specifically think of one that was really good, but you know, we bought a portfolio in North Carolina. It's gone extremely well. That's been a good state for us. As far as the failures go, I mean, really, uh, there's been a number of them over the years and there probably will be again at some point. I mean, sure. not every deal is perfect. But one specific one was we decided to build a house out of shipping containers and it cost, this was, you know, 12 years ago, and it cost a lot more and took a lot longer than stick building would have, but we didn't think it would. And we lost a bunch of money. And all that we learned was don't build a house out of containers. Ever again. <laughs> Ever again. And the, the other deal, I would say the worst storage deal that we've done, and thankfully this is not with any other capital partners, it's just me and my two partners in it. We bought a deal in Iowa, very tired, very busted, relatively small as part of a 1031. And 1031s are tricky, right? Because you've got external motivation to buy something you might not otherwise organically buy. Right. So this deal was okay. We needed, I mean, we had a big tax bill if we didn't get it parked. So we bought this thing and it's just been sucking wind. I mean, it, yeah. it covers the debt service and there's a tiny bit of cash flow. We knew it wasn't a great deal, but it's what we had on the plate at the time. We identified it during identification period. So for those of us listening or in a 1031 right now, be careful. 
don't let the tax bill potential force you into buying something that maybe you shouldn't. Yeah. Those are really the two bad ones that come to mind. Yeah. The nice piece of advice I got on a 1031 exchange in the few times that we've done them is make sure you've lined up the deal that you're buying before you sell, if at all possible. Yeah. 45 days. 45 days is a short period of time. Short, short fuse. Okay. Yep. Okay. Six months to close. That's okay. Yep. Identifying in 45 days, that is tight, especially in this market. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jacob, when you're not talking about real estate, what else do you like to do? Well, my hobbies have diminished a little bit with the toddlers, but when I do have time- Those are your hobbies. Yeah, that's right. They They are. They are. We're we're working the boys. Yeah. Right. We do a fair amount of skiing, lots of mountain climbing. Obviously, live here in Colorado, camping, hiking, road biking. I play golf. I used to play a lot more golf and haven't played much this year for the same reasons I just described. Uh, I also fly airplanes for fun. I got my license when I was in high school. Every year I say, this is the year I'm going to buy an airplane. And uh, every year I don't buy an airplane. So some year it's going to happen, but probably not in 2022. But it's not over yet. So, you know, not over yet. Yeah. I got some more time, right? There's still tread left on those tires. Do do some accelerated depreciation in Q4 and mitigate that tax bill a little bit for the year. Right on, right on. If people want to learn more about you or your firm, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, we always love to talk shop about real estate. Folks can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. They can go to our website, vanwestpartners.com or LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. Excellent. Jacob, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to see you and I'm glad you're doing so well. And I look forward to hearing about all the projects that you got coming up. Ed, enjoyed it. Thanks for having us on. This has been the Real Estate Underground Podcast, a CTRIA presentation. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. If there's a specific topic you want us to cover, post it in the comments. For more information on the Real Estate Underground Podcast or CTRIA, go to realestateundergroundpodcast.com or ctria.com. Until next time, happy investing.